Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I am Jennifer White, and I am here with my amazing, amazing sister oh. extraordinaire, Ellen Trackman. Thank you. I mean, That's you are, words. right? Uh, and uh, as are you, as are you. Oh, thank you. Uh, so, Ellen, since we're, mm-hmm. we're going to talk today about things that are new, exciting, novel, um, is there anything in your life that is new, exciting, novel, life-changing? <laughs> no, no. Life, no. Is, oh. life is not oh. new, not exciting. But, oh, okay. um, no, we we had talked this, we we're going to talk about, like, things that were, like, made life easier, like, new oh. ideas. Um, and I will say, like, there are so many apps that have made life easier that I'm very appreciative of. So one Mm. cam scanner. So these apps that let you just scan documents. Mm. So being a lawyer, right. Snooze fest. Um, I often need clients to sign documents and they're like, Oh, I can't get to a scanner, you know? And the fact that you can just like take a picture and it converts it to a PDF and you can email from your phone, um, is amazing. So I'm very that is grateful. Pretty amazing. I mean, I'm that. actually just amazing, like excited always to have a little computer in my pocket, quite honestly. So. Yes. <laughs> the, the banking one, like I really appreciate you can just, I mean, not that checks are that common anymore, but that you can deposit a check or I can pay my babysitter by Venmo. You know, these are, these are oh, amazing things. Yeah. No, technology is pretty amazing like and it just keeps like exploding at the speed of light right like every time I turn around somebody's like there's this new thing and I'm like no that's not possible and they're like it totally is and I'm like absolutely and that is true in the fertility world that there are so many new ideas bubbling up and people who are excited and motivated to introduce new ideas and new ways of helping people and today's guest is a great example of that Welcome, Lauren Mackler, co-founder of CoFertility to the podcast. Lauren, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited for this. Um, We often like to start by getting to know our guests before we go into their great new ideas and the new ways people are able to connect and form families. Where do you start in telling your story? Well, let's see. I spent eight years at Uber. Um, I launched Uber across the East Coast, and and the reason I tell this story is because that's where my my fertility journey begins. But launched Uber across the East Coast and saw an opportunity for Uber in the healthcare space. Um, millions of Americans miss a doctor's appointment every year because they don't have access to a reliable ride. Uber had reliable rides in spades, and so I pitched Uber, uh, the executive leadership team, on launching a healthcare arm of Uber, which helped more people get to the doctor. It's called Uber Health. And within a month or two of pitching that business to executive leadership, which was one of the like scarier things I had ever done at that point in my life, um, I became a patient myself. Um, I would you use well, Uber Health to get an appointment? You know, um, I, I, 
I could have very much. Um, but what ended up happening, and, and typically Uber Health is for those just while we're at it on the subject, I'll, I'll tell you it's, it's yeah, for please. folks who um, might not have a smartphone or are low income or might not oh. have access to a credit card. So it's a more, it's like a B2B arm of Uber where the healthcare organization requests rides on behalf of the patient. It's really exciting. During my time there, we, we served over 10 million patients, which was really exciting. Um, but back to, to my story, I guess, I I woke up one morning a couple months after pitching Uber Health. I was actually at South by Southwest there to to speak on a healthcare panel. Yeah. And I woke up the morning of my panel and I had a pain in my side. And I thought, gosh, something is not right. Yeah. And figured, okay, if I still feel this pain in a few days, I'm going to go to the doctor. Went to the doctor. Thankfully, was on the same side as an appendix. So they were like, hmm, let's get you an ultrasound. And um, got an ultrasound that they were like, hmm, seems like you need a CT scan right away. Didn't give me much information from there. That turned into, okay, you – I had masses throughout my abdomen. They didn't know why, and they, within days, scheduled a diagnostic surgery to find out what was going on, and it was very scary in that they were like, you know, do you have family nearby? Have someone – had my sister fly up from L.A. to San Francisco at the time to join me for that. Um, My parents flew out. It was a very scary experience, and what turned out was that I had – an incredibly rare abdominal disease. So when I say incredibly rare, one of 154 people on the planet at that point in time to ever be diagnosed with it. Um, That meant I had like cystic masses just growing throughout my abdomen, like on and around my organs. And... Sounds scary and painful. It was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. it, It... One of the worst parts about it, I think, is just how few people had it. Um, and it's even like the name of it is debated, right? Some call it um, multicystic peritoneal mesothelioma. Others call it benign multicystic uh, peritoneal mesothelioma. And um, it's debated in the literature whether it's considered low-grade cancer or, or if it's benign. Mm-hmm. To me, I didn't care. I just wanted it out. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to know like what the path forward would be in managing it and um, realized I would need to have at least another major surgery, if not more, during my life to remove the disease to like protect the fun- functioning of my organs. Um, and as you can imagine, my next question was, will I ever be able to have children? And I went to go see a reproductive endocrinologist who specializes in patients who have rare diseases, which was really incredible to have someone who was like interested in reading about the disease and like wanted to learn more about it. And I said to him, you know, I know I have these surgeries coming up where basically they said, you know, you may have to remove your reproductive organs. You may have to like remove any organs that have been affected by this disease. And so I asked, like, should I freeze my eggs, right? Like, should I preserve my fertility so that in the event I want to have children, which I absolutely did want to, like, I'd have options. And did you have a part? Sorry, just did did you have a partner or a spouse (laughs) at that time who was involved in all of this? Great question. I had just started dating (laughs) my now husband. So we had been together maybe like two or three months at that point. And so 
I didn't even want to like mention to him that I wanted to have kids someday, you know? You're like, I uh, barely want to talk to you about my medical information, right? Right, like at that right. Point. <laughs> right. And I think I was like maybe – I think I had just turned 29. And, um, you know, it, it definitely brought up that conversation, but I certainly wasn't going to like bring him to the fertility doctor with me, you know? And so I was very lucky to have a close friend of mine – she was actually a coworker at Uber and she's now an advisor and investor to co-fertility, which is really exciting, wow. who came with me to my my appointment um, just because it can be so daunting to meet with a, a REI for the first time, especially when you've had a diagnosis like that. And we asked a million questions and ultimately what he said was, look, your disease is so rare that I don't feel comfortable injecting you with hormones. Um, we don't know what the impact of that could be on this disease. It could, you know, spontaneously transform this disease. So like, let's not go there, but, you know, have you heard about egg donation? And within the same breath, he was like, or, you know, do you have a sister? And, you know, I, I do have a sister. And at the time she was 34 and she had had two children. Um, and I, I like, didn't say anything then, but started thinking about it, went home, read about egg donation, looked into the options that existed out there, uh, and was frankly like pretty off put by what I saw. Um, mm. I couldn't believe that egg donors get paid as much as they do for their eggs. I, as someone who's Jewish, like looked to see like, hmm, like would I be able to find a Jewish egg donor? was really shocked by how uh, little options I saw. Uh, and just was very like, ooh, I don't think that's the right path for me. Um, and as I was thinking about this, my sister called me and said, I would give you my left arm if it meant you'd be a mother someday. Aww. And yeah, it was pretty incredible. Have yeah. you been talking to her about what you've been going through? Or did, did you even raise that about the doctor saying, do you have a sister? I I had said that he didn't want to freeze my eggs. I didn't say, you know, will you do this you? for yeah. me? Yeah. Um, she, my sister is like very uh, attuned and, and knew what was going on and had been going with me to my surgeon appointments and, and was oh. very involved in my, in my uh, health journey in general. And so it just was this very – natural and incredible thing for her to to offer to do. Mm. Um, and I was lucky enough to be already uh, like working very closely with a therapist at that point before my diagnosis so that when I was diagnosed and was going through this, I, I had that foundation already. And so my therapist and I talked a lot about what, you know, accepting my sister's eggs would mean um, for me in that moment and in the future. And what it might mean to like grieve my own genetics and and think about that. And I decided at that point that I I did want to accept my sister's offer. And uh, she froze her eggs and donated them to me ahead of my my first major surgery. Um, and so she did that with my doctor up in San Francisco and and did some remote monitoring down in LA. And it was, you know, generally a, a pretty textbook uh, egg retrieval process and one that I'm like absolutely forever grateful for. Um, and so I got to go into this surgery 
knowing I had those eggs on ice. So should I wake up with no ovaries? Um, I had them there, you know? And, and, and I hate to go back to this. No, that's partner. okay. Um, oh, yeah. Boyfriend of three months. Um, yeah. Oh, your sister's eggs. Like, how did that, yeah. <laughs> how did yeah. that conversation go? Well, it's interesting how, like, when you go through something as big as this in a relationship, I think it's, like, pretty telling very quickly, like, whether or not you're with the right person. And <laughs> he, he, like, showed what he was made of pretty quickly. Uh, and so by oh. that that spring, he actually had like started to spend time with my sister and her family and her two young sons at that point and um, fell in love with them. And I obviously like being their aunt was and still is like one of the highlights of my life. And I feel such an incredible connection to her children that it just to him it was like great, like you'll have a backup option. We'll take this as it comes. Nice. Um, and so he like from, from day one really was incredibly supportive. But I think this whole experience with my diagnosis very much accelerated our relationship. Yeah, I can see that. Okay. So you go into surgery yes. knowing yes. you have your sister's eggs on ice. Yes. Um, thankfully from that surgery – they were able to you know, remove the disease. I was able to keep all of my reproductive organs. I lost some other organs in the meantime. They oh, no. Took, took oh, my, no. My gallbladder, my appendix, um, those I don't need. I did oh, not care okay. one bit, um, but I was like thrilled to hear that I still had my ovaries and the whole, the whole kit and caboodle there, you know? Um, and, you know, went on, had a very long recovery. It was a pretty intense, like, you know, I had a seven inch incision, like a big recovery, uh, went back to work. And then, you know, about a year and a half later, I had recurrence of disease. And so, um, the location of some of these like cystic masses I had, seemed to be problematic. It can be like the location of them or whatever that can be disruptive. And so my doctor said, hey, let's do another surgery. This time we did something called HIPAC, which is called – you guys are getting the long version of the story. Yeah, okay. That's okay. Um, I had something called HIPAC, which um, is when they use a heated chemo to a very like specific temperature. They pump it into your abdomen and this is after they remove the like masses. They they shake your body what? with the heated chemo. Yeah, while you're asleep on the table, they shake your body to hmm. dislodge any leftover cells of the disease and oh, wow. essentially kill any leftover cells of the disease so it's less likely to recur. So they do that for 90 minutes and then they clean it out and they like pump. Shake- Sorry, I'm trying to envision this. Is there like a shaking table? Are they manually shaking they- you? They manually work? shake you on a table. It's like both the oh. table and the team. It's kind of wild. Wow. For yeah. Wow. Yeah, for 90 minutes, and it's like a very specific temperature. Um, and so I like I learned so much about this. Um, and then they like wash you out with saline, and they shake you. They like do the whole process again, but with saline to make sure that like clean you out of the chemo. Um, Before I did this, actually, that same um, fertility specialist who works with rare disease patients, he actually put me on Lupron to like put my body into menopause during this process so that my – the healthiest cells of my ovaries would be protected, Hmm. Um, not knowing if that would work or not, but did what he believed was the best chance at like 
preserving my fertility. And um, again, like woke up from that surgery. They did not remove my my ovaries or or anything involved in that area, which was so great. But even, you know, the risk of the high pec, we didn't know what the chemo might do to my ovaries. And right. so knowing that I had my sister's eggs there again, this like gift of frozen eggs was amazing. And I remember actually waking up in the hospital and this was a hospital that every time a baby is born in the hospital, they play a lullaby throughout oh. the hospital, which like is pretty triggering. You yes. know, like I get it. It's like nice. Like it's like a gift of it life. It can be, but, but it can be horrible, right? right. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it was for me at that time. I remember it was a really hard thing to hear because, you know, you don't know what's possible. Yeah. But I remember every time I heard the lullaby reminding myself, hey, we have these eggs. Um, and so, you know, before – at that point, Jake and I were engaged. Um, and our wedding was actually six months after that surgery. And so I used that time to recover. We had a beautiful wedding. Um, it felt like really coming out the other side of a very long journey. And um, we waited a year before trying to have a baby as recommended by my doctor, given there was chemo in my system. And um, the REI that I was working with said, hey, if, if after six months you're not pregnant, come see me. We'll talk about using your sister's eggs. And I made that appointment because after four months of trying, I was frustrated uh, and had it on the calendar. And on the sixth month, I got pregnant unassisted. And I now have a beautiful 20-month-old daughter named Eden. And she's like the best thing ever. Um, And what happened was, to make this long story short, um, the minute I gave birth, I felt this immense uh, clarity of oh my gosh, I need to build something in reproductive health. Like how incredible is it that I, after this crazy road, was able to get to this beautiful baby? Like I've spent all this time at Uber learning how to build and create, you know, impact at scale through technology and, you know, networks of people, right? Like how do I take what I learned there and go help more people have babies who want them? And I decided I wasn't going to go back to Uber after my maternity leave. And within a day of of giving notice at Uber, Hallie Teco, who's my now co-founder, found me on Instagram and sent sent me a message. Um, We had known each other peripherally through the digital health community. And she was like, hey, I heard you might be fundraising. What are you up to? (laughs) And I was like, I'm not. Like, are any – and she's like one of the most – like she has like invested in tons of women health companies. She started um, Rock Health, which was like one of the first digital health funds. She started Natalist, which is like the company that makes pregnancy tests, ovulation kits, had sold that company to Everly Well. I just like always looked up to her as a role model. I like, couldn't believe she was DMing me, never mind like wanting to talk to me about my future. <laughs> and I was like, uh, are any of your portfolio companies hiring? Like I'm looking. And she was like, you're on the market. And she asked for my phone number, called me the next day, having not known 
anything about my health history because I hadn't been public with it at that point, she told me she had this idea that she had been sitting on for years around egg freezing and egg donation, which is now what co-fertility is doing, which I'd love to share more about. Uh, And when I told her, my history was like, oh my gosh, we need to go build this company. Wow. And the rest is history. Exactly. Yeah. We never, (laughs) we like never looked back. So tell us about that idea and the building of this new option. Yeah. So my experience, as you know, like I saw just like what was, what wasn't happening in egg donation. I felt like some innovation needed to happen in the space. And Hallie's someone who often says one of her biggest regrets in life is not having froze her eggs at, you know, in her 20s. Um, And when it comes down to it, like at age 25, Hallie didn't know that she should freeze her eggs. So like awareness was part of the problem. But the other is that like at age 25, she wouldn't have been able to afford freezing her eggs. And we're happy to see progress being made in terms of like fertility becoming part of the conversation in a way that it never has been before. Um, People are like much more aware that they should be thinking about their fertility. They know that, you know, miscarriage is part of people's journey. They know like it's becoming more of a thing, but we aren't taking that next step to like helping women be more proactive about their fertility. Um, And part of that is because of the cost. And so what we're building and what we launched this past October is co-fertility, which we give women the opportunity to freeze their eggs for free when they donate half of the eggs retrieved to intended parents who can't otherwise conceive. So that could be someone who struggles with infertility, gay dads, cancer survivors, uh, and more, right? Like there are lots of people who who need the help of an egg donor to have a baby. And traditionally, egg donation, at least in the U.S., is done where an egg donor is compensated with cash. And it can be you, – you guys know this, right? It can be anywhere from, you know, $8,000 to, as I've heard about cases, like $100,000 in cash compensation. And – we think that while that certainly works for some, you know, there are a lot of women who are actually who actually would donate their eggs but are actually off put by the compensation piece of it because it doesn't feel right to them to be as some of them put it selling their eggs. That's so inter- that's so like, counterintuitive, right? That mm-hmm. many people think, "Oh, if you need more donors, the answer is to to raise Higher them." Higher compensation, they're compensated. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not to not compensate, it's right? Right, and so we had this hypothesis that take that out of the equation, and not only does it attract new donors, but it actually makes intended parents feel a lot better about the process. And not just because it's less expensive, but because it feels better to them to be, you know, empowering a young woman and like to be in it with them, right? And to to sort of do it together and to have mutually aligned incentives in terms of like egg quality and egg quantity and to to feel like they're empowering her to go live her life on her terms. And to, you know, prioritize things like her education or, 
you know, maybe not having found a partner yet, not feeling like she has to rush to, you know, settle down if she's not ready to. Um, and then the other piece of it that we're, we're really keyed in on is the fact that, you know, there was a study that came out of Harvard last year that said donor-conceived people really struggle with the idea that their parents paid someone to contribute their yeah. genetics, right? And right. so there are donor-conceived people that unfortunately feel – and we've heard this. We've actually worked closely um, we, with the U.S. Donor Conceived Council to get their take on everything that we've built. And they said, you know, there are people who – have, are donor conceived and who feel like they have to measure up to the exact dollar amount that their parents paid the donor. And that to me is is heartbreaking, right? So like if we can take donor compensation out of the equation and I don't fault the like fertility industry. I don't even like the word industry in this context, but like I don't fault the space, right, for going to, to cash compensation because that's what they thought they needed to do. But now that we know better – and we know that it's not something that sits well with many donor-conceived people, and we know that donors don't necessarily need it, we think it's time to try something new. And how is your hypothesis playing out? Are you seeing lots of potential donors? Yes. So we launched Tell in October. We have had thousands of women apply, and it is so exciting. Like, the women who are applying are what's what's great about it, I think, is is a few things, right? Is that they are this generation in general, I think, is like more open-minded to the fact that um the fact that like the way we build families today is more dynamic than ever before, right? So they have friends who are donor conceived or they have friends or maybe they themselves are part of the LGBTQ community that they know relies on third party reproduction to grow a family or, um, you know, they just, they understand, they believe that someone should be able to be a single parent by choice if that's something that they want to do. Right. So mm-hmm. when they're posed with this question of like, would you like to help someone grow their family while also planning for your future, it's very exciting to them. And it's a great proposition and they're incredible. And so the women we've seen come through are people who've really prioritized their career or their education. So we have doctors, scientists, like professors, um, you know, teachers, nonprofit leaders, like PhDs, right? Like women who like, a Fulbright scholar, right? Like people who I'm just like blown away every day when I see their their applications. Um, and they're excited about what we're doing and they're excited about how we're doing it, which is something that makes me really proud. Nice. And what does the process and the matching look like for donors and recipients? Is that part pretty traditional or is that different? Yeah. So in, in some regards, it's very traditional in the sense that like we absolutely use all of the same donor criteria that ASRM and FDA puts forth, right? Like we're not, we're not pushing any uh, boundaries on that front at all. We really want to um, not at all uh, do anything that would hurt patient outcomes, right? Like we really want all of this to go well for the intended parents and for these donors. 
Um, so that is very much the the traditional standard for us. Um, we do as much as possible online with these women, knowing how much of a like busy schedule most of them have. So we do as much screening and qualifying upfront um, via like an online application. And then um, our team meets with every single woman who submits her application to do a combination of like an interview, but also like informed consent, right? We really want to make sure that she knows what she's getting into and that she takes it really seriously. Um, after that conversation, if all goes well, she signs an agreement with cofertility that lets us um, that like shows that she's serious about it, but also confirms that we can share her profile with intended parents. And then intended parents come to us. They, you know, let us know a little bit about what they're looking for. They have access to our donor profiles for free and they can place a hold on a match. Where things are different with us is that and, and we really believe in in a mutual match. We don't like the scenario where a donor has no clue where her eggs go. Um, to us, that's just like another part of the space that feels kind of antiquated. Um, and so for us, we, we in some cases, the intended parent will write a letter to the donor or share some photos. In other cases, um, the intended parent is really excited to do what we call match meeting. And if the donor also wants to do that, we help facilitate that. It can be over Zoom or in person. It can have a member of our team there or not. Uh, we just like want to foster a, a positive experience for everyone involved. Um, we offer like conversation starters and things like that to make sure that it feels easy and um, comfortable. And um, from there, we work with the clinic that the intended parents want to move forward with. It can either be their pre-existing clinic and the donor will travel or um, depending on the donor schedule, sometimes part of the cycle is done local to the donor. Um, it just really depends on the match. And you mentioned talking to and working with U.S. Donor Conceived Council. And I know mm -hmm. a lot of information coming out from, you know, surveys and studies with donor conceived people is the the desire for information, yeah. especially when it comes to identity of mm -hmm. a donor as well as medical mm -hmm. information. How are those elements evolving with co-fertility? Yeah. So first of all, we like are very clear that the the word anonymous in this space just needs to go away. Um, we educate every woman who comes through on the donor side and every intended parent to know that um, if 23andMe is as uh, like ubiquitous as it is today, what's going to happen 18 years from now, right? Like DNA testing is very real and, and we don't see that going anywhere. And so we're upfront about that now. We're not trying to like hide that reality. And we think that others in the space who are like still offering anonymous eggs are just misleading everybody involved. Um, we often facilitate what we call disclosed relationships where the intended parents and the donors have each other's contact information and they can be in as much or as little contact as they want to be throughout this process and then throughout the life of the donor-conceived person on the other end of this. Um, in some scenarios, we've had um, situations where they don't necessarily meet up front, but that 
they have access to one another's information should they want it down the line or when the child turns 18. Um, and, you know, we try to like honor the preferences of everybody involved. So um, we're clear that even if someone does want to have an undisclosed donation where they don't share that information, that they at least know that this is not a scenario where you will never be contacted and no one is promising that. Um, but we tried to be a resource and, and really help educate on that side of things. So we have a ton of articles and content that's been written by, we have a fertility psychologist on our medical advisory board who um, has written a ton of that content from experience with her own uh, patients and experience. And we really take the time with everyone involved to like really be thoughtful about that decision. Makes sense. I, I have an interesting, and I'm going to kind of go back, just curiosity, and it's a double-edged curiosity. And so I'd love to hear both sides of it. And yeah. I, please know I'm coming at this from a very outsider perspective in that, yeah. you know, I know I know enough to be dangerous, but I don't do it with egg donation every day. So I don't, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, so that it's just, it's from that perspective is what it comes from. So I can see if you're sharing, right, you got two you've got parents who are taking half the gestational yep. carrier that are not just, I'm sorry, see, I used the wrong word right there. <laughs> so you have the donor or donor who is also donating to herself essentially, or you know, freezing her own eggs. There are two potential, like potentially bad outcomes, right? What happens if there are almost no eggs Yep. or would there be a potential, how are you protecting people against the um, potential for like being overstimulated or hyperstimulated because you have an aggressive doctor who's like, I'm going to get as many as possible and try to get, help you, the parents get, you know, 20. Cause I hear parents on my side, on the surrogacy side who get really disappointed. They're like, the, the donor only got egg, eight eggs right, and I'm really, right. you know, freaked out. So how do you either protect or educate on both sides to make sure that people are yeah. okay in that middle ground? So education up front is like number one priority for us on both sides. And that's something we're like super, super, super committed to in terms of expected outcomes and like the different ways that this scenario could go. Um, many intended parents opt to do two cycles with the same donor and even set that up ahead of time, knowing that those are like what the potential outcomes could be. Um, okay. Other ones say, hey, let's see how the first cycle goes, and then we'll decide to do a second. I think what's interesting is that even two cycles with co-fertility is often less expensive than what they would pay if they were working with a standard fresh agency option because, um, again, there's no donor compensation. So they're very open to doing two cycles. Um, and then the third piece of it is – well, actually, there's a couple things. One, um, the uh, upfront screening that's done um, can really be a predictor, right? So we work with the physician involved in the case to look at a number of factors to see if this person, before they move forward with a cycle, is a good candidate to do a split cycle. So that's super important. The other piece is that we have what we call our baby guarantee. And that baby guarantee is on the co-fertility coordination fee. So the fee that we charge intended parents to manage this entire process and find them the donor, we say that like if for whatever reason you don't end up having a baby from this cycle of eggs, we will either 
rematch you with another donor at no additional co-fertility coordination fee, or we'll refund it um, because we know that they're taking a chance and we want them to feel whole. We want them to have a baby. And so we're not going to think that's something that gets a lot of folks really comfortable in, in working with us and something that we're really proud to offer. How does it work for a donor who is interested in, in preserving her own eggs and you know would like to donate, but doesn't happen to be chosen or matched? Yeah. Does she, how does she still go forward? Yeah. So that's why we offer a, a program called Keep. So for women who either, and there's a lot of scenarios, right? Like some women sure. off the bat might not qualify for donation, yeah. right? They right. might be over the, the recommended age or you know, maybe they have a, a health risk or something that makes them not qualified. Um, there's also women who just straight up aren't interested in egg donation. And that's okay. It's not yeah. for everybody. It's not for everybody. And we don't want to ever pressure anyone. Um, but even the scenario like you're talking about, even if they make it through all those checks and – they just don't get selected. Um, we check in with them regularly. We don't want anyone to just be sitting waiting if they do want to move forward with egg freezing. And so our KEEP program offers them the opportunity to freeze their eggs, keep 100% of them for themselves. They do have to pay out of pocket, which is different than our split program. But we have partnerships with clinics, with storage providers, with different folks throughout the process that we can – um, offer to the women in our key program to help lighten the financial load. Um, so we never want to leave someone hanging without the option to freeze their eggs. Nice. Um, what have you been, what have you found has been like the biggest obstacle or challenge so far with this? Ooh, um, biggest obstacle or I think there's, I think explaining how we're different. Too many donors. No. <laughs> we do have we have lots of don like come check us out. Um there are lots of donors waiting ready to be matched. Um but I think that it's it's really interesting in that there are some intended parents who find our website, check out our donors and this happened yesterday. Like within like two hours of signing up for an account, an intended parent matched with a donor, put down a deposit, moved forward. Then there are intended wow. parents who, which like love to see it. It's great. Then there are intended parents who were more than happy to talk with and who we have get lots of questions from and, you know, really, really want to, it's a really big decision. And so we work to get them comfortable and help them understand all of the of our process, the clinic process, the donor process, the whole thing um, before they decide to move forward. Um, and we're new, right? So we then oftentimes spend time with their doctor explaining what we're doing and then we move forward from there. So it's just like I'm at a point where I'm like ready for everybody to just know about us. So it's like, you know, <sighs> happens faster. Um, but that's, you know, I think with any new company, I remember the early days of Uber, I joined in 2013 when all of my friends were like, wait, you're going to a taxi company? And <laughs> I remember being like, here, like to anyone I would meet, be like, give me your phone. Like, let me download this app on your phone. And I swear, if you press a button when you want to ride, a car will come. And it just took a lot of those conversations and it took time before you know, Uber became its own verb. 
Um, so I just have to be patient. Yeah. Love it. Um, so what about your sister's eggs? Yeah. Um, Back to you. Yeah. My sister's eggs are still frozen. Um, my sister went on to have a third beautiful baby, um, who is now like the, the girl, big cousin to, to my daughter who she's, they're like very, very into each other, which makes me really happy. Um, but I feel comforted now, even knowing, like I still get MRIs every six months, um, to like keep an eye on, on things with me. Um, and I hope to have a second child at some point. And so I feel comforted knowing that those eggs are there should I need them. Um, but I now have a, you know, even deeper respect and understanding of, of the whole process and, um, appreciate my sister even more. Yeah. So where should listeners go to find more information? Yeah. So we, you can find us at cofertility.com. Uh, we also on Instagram, we realized just how different the two different, um, members that we serve are, right? So we have one account called at family by co for intended parents who are interested in finding an egg donor. We have a ton of resources and content and our medical advisors are always on there answering questions and things like that. So at family by co. And then on the other side, we have at freeze by co for women who are interested in either our keep or split program to, to follow along with what we're doing or to talk to us directly. Um, I'm at Lauren Mackler. I like often have intended parents and split members or anyone in my DMs. I like more than happy to, to have conversations there. Um, but we we really love our our community. So happy to be helpful in any part of this journey. Love it. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for sharing all that you're doing, for sharing this new option. Um, we look forward to, to keeping in touch. So thank you. Thank you. I love what, what you're both doing. So thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. Thanks to Co-Fertility for coming on and sharing what they have going on and these new offerings. We're Seriously, always excited right? to hear about new things and um, expect to see great things in the future. New, innovative, just like Uber was when it first came out, right? Like, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, hopefully we have innovative guests, right? So all of you who want to see more interesting and innovative guests, you should definitely give us a call and make your suggestions. If you know anyone, yeah, Ooh. let us know. We should yes. reach out to, please. Yeah. 303-997-1903 is our number. Again, we love it when people call. Um, I don't love it when it's about my car warranty, car extended warranty. If you but... want to ask for more lawyer guests, we I accept that as well. So if you want to say more oh, lawyers, well, totally. So I'll override her and tell people call and say that. So um, all y'all who want uh, more lawyer guests, you have to come on and ask for them. So but please do or go to our facebook group and make suggestions we are really open to tracking down whoever it is that you want to hear from um and thank you to everybody for their feedback thank you to our team to amanda to tyler to melissa we really appreciate all of you and of course to all of you who listen thanks for coming